Welcome to the Signature Grow the Game podcast. I'm your host, Dan Soviero, and today we're going to dive into the world of youth sports and speak with leaders who are making an impact in their communities. From coaches to program directors and beyond, we'll explore the latest trends, issues, and solutions in the world of youth sports. But before we get started, we'd like to give a shout out to our title sponsor, Signature Athletics. Their game-changing team swag stores are designed to make youth and travel sports programs feel like the big leagues. If you like what you hear on the podcast, please take a moment to leave us a review and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. All right, welcome to the Signature Grow the Game podcast. I'm your host, Dan Soviero, founder of Signature, and today I've got a really special guest, Coach Lars Tiffany at University of Virginia. Coach, welcome. Dan, thank you for uh, having us get together this morning. It's wonderful to spend time with you. Yeah, it's really nice. It's really nice to get to know you better. So I would love to just get a quick intro, um, kind of your background and what's brought you to uh, to being the head coach at Virginia. Sure. You know, I'm very fortunate to uh, have grown up in Lafayette, New York, just south of Syracuse. Uh, with a strong influence from my friends who are on the Onondaga Nation. You know, the Onondaga are one of six of the Haudenosaunee, uh, formerly known as the Iroquois. And so I had this incredible advantage to be born and raised um, in the heartland of lacrosse, you know, where the game is played at this best level uh, in the Native American community, you know, right there with the Onondaga people. And so I grew up playing this game of lacrosse with my friends. We also played football and basketball and even baseball, but there was something really different and unique. And um, and so I was able to get this early exposure to a sport, which is essentially spiritual and religious in value um, to, uh, the, the, to the original people of this continent, um, to Turtle Island. And I just, I, what an advantage, right? It's almost genetic for me. It's not, you know, I'm, I'm a, a Caucasian white man, but uh, but I was befriended and be a part of this community uh, through some actions of my father and um, and through playing lacrosse myself. Yeah. So I was able to help take me to, you know, the take the steps, get it to a, uh, you know, Brown University, and uh, and away I went with my college coaching career after college. Wow, and I'm sure being a good athlete helped. That's one of the cool things about sports is you can, if you're pretty good, you're going to end up on teams with people from that are pretty good from all different backgrounds and you get to get exposed to things that maybe you otherwise wouldn't have. So it's a really cool part of sports. It is. It is wonderful because as we, as we all know that the locker room is one of the places that tends to be, not always, but tends to be a place where the mixing of races um, uh, occurs naturally. And there tends to be less racism, not completely uh, negated, but we tend to work together because we're working together for a common goal, you know, whether it's to win the league championship, uh, to win more games, you know, to come together as a tight knit united front, yeah. whatever the objective is. And so we push aside religious differences and skin color differences. And so it is wonderful when you have the opportunity to play sports uh, and all of us do when we're young. And as we get older, you do sort of get selected out or selected in based on your ability. And yeah. uh, and I was fortunate to to have enough ability, not, not as much as most of my teammates, but <laughs> enough ability to be a part of those teams and and to be a part of this collective where you can, uh, 
you know, really commit to uh, achieving a goal and not worry about all the political, racial, yeah. social differences that maybe exist. It's such a powerful point. And uh, I, from our conversations earlier and just hearing you talk as we we're getting ready for the podcast, you strike me as the glue guy. Was that your role on the teams? And is that your role at Virginia? Or are you the guy that brings everybody together and keeps the chemistry and the culture really vibrant? Well, it's interesting. I um I certainly wasn't the best player on the team, so I couldn't be like the Pele of Brazilian soccer, you know. Um, and um, but I will say I was, you know, I was fortunate to be uh, a captain in high school, and I was a captain with the Brown lacrosse team twice. And and so I I you know I'm not the funniest guy. I'm uh, not the necessarily the greatest athlete, but you know that you know trying to bring people together, you know, and committing us all to come united and as tight as we can. Um, I think that's what I spent a lot of my time. And I certainly do uh, now as a head coach, whether it was Stony Brook uh, for two years, Brown for 10, and now in my eighth year here at Virginia. Um, that is my objective. That is my ultimate goal is to how can we unite? And, uh, and, and, I'm, and I'm, don't, I'm not doing this perfectly. Um, you know, when I really wanted something, you know, I can get antsy, yeah. you know, I can get fired up. I can yell at some guys different practice. Yeah, everybody who's a hyperachiever can, right? But sure. yeah, I think it's just such a great example, especially as a head coach of these college men. And they're coming from being the best players in their high school programs from all different states. Probably everyone was an All-American and they all get there and they think they're the big dog. And to just to have that level of leadership at the coaching level and for them to be able to go through that and understand the power of culture and how they can be a participant, an active participant in building the culture and do it by design and not just let the, the cookie crumble the way it's going to crumble. That's that's how every business should be. That's how every religious community should be. That's how every every group that's to, that's coming together should have that same that same purpose. Um, it's just such a beautiful thing to show show these guys. It is. And, you know, it's interesting when when I was younger and a lot of us when we're younger, we don't recognize, you know, necessarily the differences as much. You know, we're more worried about, will you be my buddy? Will you be my friend? You know, and and um, and there's a beautiful there's a beauty in that ignorance and that innocence. Um, you know, so for me, growing up with Native Americans, uh, I knew we were different, but I didn't see that as a, you know, as sort of a different race in a sense. Like I, I just they were my buddies and, yeah. and we just, we grew up amongst each other, you know, at Lafayette high school. And, um, and so there's a, um, there's a real value when you're exposed to it at a younger age. Um, and it's, it's just less of an obstacle. Yeah. Normalizes humans being human and, and nothing else really mattering. You're all working towards a common goal. You're all on the same team and it's really cool. Um, yeah. So tell us a little bit more about the college career and you've won a couple national championships. You've bounced around to helped build three really incredible top performing college programs. And now you're taking the Cavaliers to the, to this final four every year. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Well, almost every year that the, the objective is certainly be in the, uh, the national championship semifinals uh, yearly, but you know, it's um, we weren't able to do that in 2022, but yeah, it's been it's been a wonderful journey, and I can't wait for where the next you know the, the next path takes us. And I, I, I and I say that intentionally. It's a, it's almost like this grand experiment. Um, and this is our eighth year here. We Kip Turner and I, Sean Curran was here for the first seven. He's 
He's moved on and now we're fortunate that Kevin Cassis has joined us. Logan Greco has been with us as a player and as a coach uh, mm-hmm. here at UVA. And so, but but I look at year eight, it's like chapter eight in this book that's still being written. And I don't really know, you know, how chapter eight will finish up. I don't know what will dominate. What would be the title of chapter eight? You know, unfortunately, the first couple chapters were more entitled by, you know, social mistakes, bad decisions with alcohol and drugs, um, reforming the program, you know, from off the field issues. And, um, and as we move forward, you know, fortunately, more of the chapters are more in a positive light, you know, success on the field. Yeah. But yeah, chapter eight, it's, uh, you know, what is the title of chapter eight? You know, and it's, that's what's a wonderful part of this journey. And what will be the new thing that we do that's different that maybe as a 55-year-old head coach, I never thought of before. Yeah. You know, but maybe we'll attack it differently or the mantra will be different. Um, you know, for example, the book club, you know, we we did not do, we weren't reading books of Brown or Stony Brook. And our first year at UVA, we weren't, but we were felt like after the year year one together here with Kip and I, um, and what I'm meaning is this when the spring of 2017 ended, it was like, whoa, okay, we gotta, we gotta do something different here. We're uh we're spinning our wheels in the mud in terms of making bad decisions on the corner, you know, at night, whether it's Saturday night or Tuesday night. We how do we how do we commit to being all in together and doing things the right way? And, yeah and uh, stop getting in so much trouble. And, and so we decided, Hey, we tried a few different things. And one of them was, well, why don't we, why don't we get together every Thursday or Friday and we'll talk, we'll get in a classroom for a half hour. We won't work on shooting. We won't work on stick work. You know, we won't work yeah. on a man, which needs work, but we're going to sit there and we're going to bond. We're going to talk. Well, how do we do that? Books. All right, let's have a book. Let's, let's, and so we started looking at books and like, okay, Bam, chapter eight of Phil Jackson's 11 Rings or chapter two of Obstacles Away by Ryan Holiday. Yeah. That's the chapter this week, fellas. We all read it. We connect on it. And we obviously, as we all would, bring it back to our own experiences, bring it back to our team, UVA Lacrosse, and we start talking and it starts allowing us to open up and sharing. And so that was an experiment and it worked. Yeah. still read books today. I'm just wondering and excited about what will be next. And that's so cool. And I'm sure at least what we've seen at the company is uh, part of the culture by design is if I'm consuming a piece of content that feels very on brand with the culture and with the fundamentals that we agreed to live by, or if I'm reading a book uh, or if somebody else on the team is, they'll share it. And then it, it just allows for that conversation around what is our culture? Why is it that way? What what do we want it to look like in two years? What does it look like now that we're trying to improve on? Where do you struggle personally in one of the fundamentals, but maybe somebody else doesn't? And maybe you can partner up and and learn from each other. And it's just such a cool way to open up the conversation. It, it, it gives it a platform, a, a venue, because oftentimes when I was younger and I see other coaches do this, you know, maybe the practice ends ball search, you get together, you talk for a couple of minutes and then there's that little, Hey fellas, we got to, we got to bend our backs. We got to work a little harder. You know, we, we got to trust each other a little bit more. And then you break up and go off as opposed to well, let's dive into that a little bit more. Let, let's get not just yeah. one voice, the coach's voice or one captain's voice. You know, let's see if we can get about, you know, 12 voices, you know, uh, in a 30 minute discussion and really open up and share some ideas. 
And, um, and so it's, it's just given us a platform to do that. Really incredible. So what was your, I want to kind of tie it back. What was your signature moment that really made you fall in love with the sport to the level that you have and, and stick with it all this time? I, um, in 1983, um, so Joe Solomon and I are on the Syracuse university parent team bus driving down to the national championship game at Rutgers university. Uh, it's going to be Hopkins versus Syracuse. And uh, Joe Solomon, a uh, Native American friend of mine, um, he was our goalie. And uh, but we also played football and basketball together over the years, even baseball. He uh, his brother, Travis Solomon, was his, the starting goalie for Syracuse in 1983. Um, you know, and for the lacrosse history buffs, they know that that Syracuse won the national championship that that year, that day. And uh, I was there watching my buddy Joe's brother you know, uh, as a starting goalie, um, win the game in a dramatic fashion. Um, it was a shootout and, uh, Syracuse wins 17 to 16. Um, and for me, you know, just the, uh, you know, as a sports fan, um, uh, but this connection to my best friend, Joe, and it's the family connection and understanding the spirit of the game with the native Americans. And then to see this incredible comeback, Syracuse was down 12 to five in a third quarter. Um, and, uh, you know, Johns Hopkins has their incredible tradition in history. They've got their fight song. One, two, three, four, five, six. We want more. And I just remember, you know, we were teenagers, right? You know, and as Syracuse is making this comeback and driving this thing closer and closer, we're starting to steal the fight song. We're like, we're like one, two, three, four, five, we want more. And then all of a sudden, you know, to, to pull out the victory and, you know, and I grew up in Syracuse, so I was bleeding orange. Now I bleed a different color orange, obviously. But yeah. it was just that was the day I was like, wow, I am so passionate about this sport. It's such an electric environment to 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 for that to happen. Um, I remember that game. It was an incredible game. Yeah, that must have been a really special. It was, you know, we were on the parent bus and they mistook us for the team bus. So we got sent right underneath the stadium and and That's uh, so cool. it was just just to be a part of that and um all the different parents you know Red, mark red burnham's parents back there and red Cotts's parents on a bus or a couple i remember and uh you know everyone's just fun and the spirit of it but yeah that was that was a signature moment and then the moment to you know sort of making it my life as a coach you know there, there's not really one moment in particular i think i you know you go through college a lot of us and you come out of there with some ideas I end up being, I was teaching for a couple of years out in California, but I always wanted a coach, but I just didn't think the world needed another coach. You know, I kind of a little more idealistic at 20, 22 years old and, you know, and uh, what should I do? And I was thinking about being a veterinarian and um, pursuing some things there, but, you know, one man, Dom Starja, who was our coach at Brown. So, you know, it's interesting to, to following his footsteps, I played for Dom at Brown and uh and he was a brown grad as well and yeah. he takes the virginia job and you know once upon a you know they years later i take the virginia job you know and yeah. uh and had lunch with him a couple of days ago so um but dom just made it seem that you can make a difference in young people's lives that being a coach is more than just the sport and the x's and o's like it was just he was such a father figure and um someone who really truly cared about us and someone i incredible respect for I was like, huh, I don't know if I can be his father figure as to other people as Dom is to me, but it gives me something to strive for. And and I really do want to be a coach. Yeah. Father figure almost or try to be like Dom. Then I think there's a cultural value to, yeah. to this call. There's purpose to it. That's higher meaning than the wins and losses. And I learned that from Dom. 
That's incredible. Well, thank God for the lacrosse community and an unfortunate loss for the uh, for the animals of the world. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me, though, of a, of a story. Um, I had a coach, Andrew Bolger, who played at uh, St. John's, and I ended up playing at St. John's following in his footsteps. And he's like a second dad to me. I'm still really close. And he challenged me to start coaching at a, when I was still in high school. I picked up the sport in eighth grade. So I wasn't, I didn't know the game that well. And he said, you know, coaching will help you understand the game better. Great. Um, and his challenge to me was remember your favorite coach. And every time you step on the field, try to do one thing better. And I think about that every single time I walk out on the field. Yeah. That's, that's, that's wonderful words to motivate and sense of purpose. It reminds me of, uh, uh, I had a man tell me once, you know, create an organization that if assembled would put your business out of business, you know, and, you know, something sort of this ideal to strive for. And it was similar to what you have, like think about your best coaches, you know, the best coach you've ever had. And then you step on that field and how can you make yourself better each day, you know, with that person as an inspiration or what you can take it to the next level, you know? Yeah. Sort of who, who, if that person was on the opposite sideline, I would lose to them every time. And what would their team look like? How would they communicate with each other? Uh, what would the chemistry be like on that team? Uh, what would the recruiting strategies be? All, all these things that just, you know, I, th- I try to think of it that way. Um, Incredible quote. Incredible quote. Build the team that would beat you every single time. Every time. Now, some people watching might be like, oh, yeah, one exists. It's in Durham, North Carolina. Yeah, true. We don't beat them very often. <laughs> We're trying. We're striving. But, uh, you know, and um, but yeah, it's just, you know, and sometimes like you got to check yourself in the mirror. Like I, 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 you know, if if my mission is to develop difference makers, leaders, innovative thinkers, then I can't run into the, you know, into a into a 66 drill, and start yelling and screaming at everybody because I'm pissed about something, you know, like, well, wait a minute, you, you know, no, you have to let them work it through. And, you know, let's collaborate as opposed to dictate and, uh, you know, making sure our actions fulfill how we, the mission we wanted to accomplish. Yeah. It's really incredible. And, and that same leadership, we talked a little bit before the call, but the, uh, the military, the largest organization, one of the largest organizations in the world and how they're able to operate so successfully when they have somebody managing 250,000 people underneath them, and it's it's leadership by goal setting and, and having the leaders underneath come up with the plan of how to get there. And that collaboration and that accountability and that ownership just in the process of how here's here's where we're at. Here's where we're trying to go. How are we going to get there? It's just. So yeah, cool. it really is. And that, that phrase decentralized command. Um, that really struck home for me because I'm thinking, wow, if there is a more buttoned up top down leadership. Um, you know, organization uh, than the military, then I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what that is. I, I don't think it exists, you know, that, that this is, but yet the military has, has evolved and recognized that, you know, troops on the ground can't always check back with headquarters for decision-making. Uh, so that decentralized command. And that really struck me like, man, if the military can do that, if they can empower those with lesser ranks and lesser stripes, you know, what if we did that? What if, what if I'm, you know, I'm 30 yards away, 40 yards away, on the sidelines, you know, what if I had decision making shifted from me to them and and then I've got to live and grow with it. So yeah. I've got to create practices that have more opportunities for them to be working together, talking to each other, stopping a drill, collaborating 
you know, and then I'm the, like the impatient guy, like, no, no, more drills, more reps. But I'm like, wait a minute, Lars, this is learning. They're actually talking right now. They're using yeah. our language, the slide scheme language. They're talking. And this is where real learning might be going on. Uh, as opposed to me standing in front of them on a grease board, X's and O's, like, hey, this guy slides here, and then he yeah. goes there. And um, and so creating a practice where more of that individual internal decision-making is occurring is critical if I'm going to tr- truly be in a place where it's decentralized command. It's so powerful. And and I'm sure when you're national championship and everybody's going nuts and the game's on the line, they couldn't hear you anyways. So that's true. It doesn't matter. <laughs> that's, that's true. Yeah. You know, and uh and you're right. And it's, it's, it's always, you always feel a little helpless, uh, you know, what, what you can do from 34 yards, 40 yards away. And, and so I might as well empower those guys to uh, be able to make adjustments. And it might be, you know, yeah. shift from an adjacent slide scheme to a crease slide scheme at the last second, because they've moved into a set that we studied for, or, you know, it's based on a matchup and we might get slide a little earlier than coach Tiffany said we should against this opponent. But in this situation, we got to change the scheme because of this and you know through the film study and preparation i've given them those opportunities to have you know alternatives and options and um and so that's you know that is that's a big part of it it's been it's been amazing as i get older um how much i think better our defenses are the less i'm trying to exactly what to do yeah Uh, i will say this though when you're a younger guy and you're a younger guy it's harder to let go of that because you're still proving yourself. Um, there's a there's a lot of benefits to winning titles, and um, you know, and so I get opportunities to speak to you and talk about our culture, and I get you know, uh, you know, get get some accolades and all that. And but one thing you really get is I get the ability to say I don't know. Whereas if you're a new young coach, you're 35 years old, let's say you just took over a program, and guys say, hey, coach. What do we do against the circle set? And all of a sudden they cut somebody in. Who's who's the hot guy? And you as a younger coach, you don't get really afforded the ability to be like, I don't know, why don't we talk about it? And just figure this out. Because they might look at you like, do you know what you're doing? Yeah. Whereas because of my resume, I can go in there like, I don't know, what do you guys think? You know, I think I got some ideas, you know, but what do you yeah. guys And I'm I'm afforded the opportunity to say, I don't know, or let's talk about this and let's be collaborative. And because of the prior success, I'll be like, oh, this must be the way to do it. As opposed to, oh, Lars doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah, I think I I definitely hear that challenge. A lot of my friends that got into coaching, I think there's and and being somebody that started the business a business when I was 20, 19, and and we have 24 full time and all across the board, um, different ages from I don't know, our mean age is probably 40 or 50. I don't know. But it, it hasn't mattered. And I think like you struggle with the um, the identity crisis and you think you're not the right guy for the job and everybody goes or girl for the job. Everybody goes through it. Um, what was a shift for me was just setting the tone of what our culture was going to be and how we were going to operate. And there's a there's a video we we onboard new people into it's submarine leadership. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's about the military's decentralized command, and it's about the concept of we're going to set goals, we're going to set objectives, we're going to look to the team to tell us how we're going to get there. And we might tweak the plan a little bit, but at the end of the day, everybody on our team is a leader. Everybody on our team is responsible for being a leader and contributing, and that looks like making decisions. And you're going to mess some up. That's okay. 
when you mess it up, figure it out and correct it. And if you don't, we'll color in some light for you and help you on that path. But that shift of just being intentional about it up front was such a release for me because then I could say, okay, we operate on the entrepreneurial operating system. This is our framework for management. Everybody's onboarded into it. This is our culture. These are the fundamentals, the 30 things that we believe in that are non-negotiable. If this is you, and we do this in the interview process, if this, it sounds like a cult speech, honestly, um, and it's designed to scare people away that aren't a good fit for the culture already. And the people who want to be a good fit or are a good fit, they'll be attracted to it. And then in the interview process, really figuring out, are they just attracted to it or are they, is that them? Because as a startup, you don't get the luxury of, of really growing people at the rate that you maybe as a coach get to mm-hmm. too expensive. It's the bottom line. So you really have to be pretty selective about every new person coming in, adding to the culture from day one. And if they're not, they're taking away. And as a startup trying to build in an entrenched space, you can't afford those missteps. You need that momentum to just keep going and keep growing. So it's really interesting. Yeah, the different position you're put in as a leader, depending on your age, your frame of thought, your experience, what tools you have at your disposal. It's really interesting. Yeah, no, it is. And, you know, and what that message is, is so vital. Um, And it can be a short, you know, sentence, a few words, maybe up to 25 words, uh, you know, but whatever those, those, those mission statements and and how much to reinforce and not just words on a wall that never get followed through upon. Um, You know, I remember, uh, reading a book, Culture Coil, Culture, Culture Code by Daniel Coyle, and you know, talking about this one company that just really reinforced how that you know when you work for Pixar, everyone is hired there. Your job is to make incredible animated movies, whether you're actually a producer, you know, or an administrative assistant, or no matter what your title. And I've thought about that with Virginia Lacrosse, like yeah, if we're hiring a new trainer, a nutritionist, you know, a strength coach, your job is to help. UVA men's across be the best lacrosse team in the country. That's yeah. that's your mission. And from there, that dictates decision making. And so you, it sounds like you have similar sort of thoughts as you're building your company out. You know, what is our objective? What is our mission? You know, what is your role? Very flattering to be compared to such a great culture. So thank you. <laughs> uh, but it's really interesting. And I think getting everyone listening, I mean, we have people from soccer, football, lacrosse, all different sports that that tune in here. Virginia is one of the top programs. They've been one of the top programs. It's a it's a historic program in the sport of Division One NCAA lacrosse. Um, what is that hierarchy? What does that org chart look like? And what are you responsible for? I, I actually have never asked this of a Division One head coach. And I think it's really interesting. It's interesting to think about because you run it like a business. Right. And I'm trying to make it a flat line. I I hate I hate the pyramid. Yeah. You know? Yes. The others hierarchy. will look at it that way. Yeah. Others will say, okay, head coach here, you know, but I'm trying to make it here and we all have different responsibilities. Um I uh I because I, I did work for a boss once who, you know, gave us the visual in the uh in the department meeting once and I'm like, Oh yeah, look, puts himself at the top, feeling pretty good about himself up there, doesn't he? You know, and uh I'm trying not to have that visual. You know, but, you know, obviously in the end, the head coach uh, is responsible ultimately for everything. Um, but, um, but yeah, in terms of breaking up structure, I will admit I'm still coaching the defense. And I wonder how much longer I'm going to be able to get to do that. You know, and I, what I mean by that is, you know, in college football nowadays, the head football coach, it's just there's almost too much on them. There are some. 
There are some that are calling some plays on offense or on defense. Um, but it's just it's it's gotten so advanced and so intricate with the play calling and um RPO and run and shoot and everything, you know, how to de- attack, how to defend, all that stuff. And um, so but I still have my hands in it. Where I'm feeling the stress is with name image likeness and funding, you know, sports enhancement funding of a program. Yeah. Uh, moving forward, there's a greater need to raising money. Simply just, just to put it simply. Um, whether that money is going directly um, to the university's facilities enhancement, to coaching salaries, to team budget and travel, or if that money is going directly to student athletes themselves mm-hmm. through this opportunity between NIL and Austin. And um, and so that's where I'm looking at peers of mine in my sport. I'm looking at peers in college football who are starting to give up controlling a side of the ball. They're just, you know, talent acquisition, a.k.a. recruiting, has become so much more complex, yeah. um, And along with all the other things you have to do as a head coach. But that has shifted the amount of, you know, the balance of and maybe. The, yeah, it, it's become the biggest. It, it's been the biggest needle mover in are you going to win or not forever, your people. Now it's become also the biggest liability because of the NIL and people getting paid. So now it's, it's a really big suck on the budget. I would imagine it's probably the number one liability on the budget or will soon become the number one liability on the budget. Yeah. And I, and I used, you use the word budget in a sense, like almost sort of um, proverbial and that, that like all the money that's out there that potentially UVA men's lacrosse or, you know, North Carolina basketball can raise, you know, you think about, all right, Typically, over the years, we've raised X, and that helped fund coaches' salaries, that helped fund the budget, that helped fund the scholarships. We are at X. Now, there's a Y and a Z, and those are plus, plus Y, plus Z. So we still need X. But all of a sudden, with NIL and Alston and the competition for better coaches and salaries are increasing, and yet athletic departments are saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are we going to fund every sport the same way? Because maybe some other sports, they're struggling even just to get to X mm-hmm. because now they need NIL money, you know, football and basketball. Absolutely. You know, and then we're talking in millions of, into the millions, into seven figures. If you're going to be a power five conference football or basketball program, you're going to be into that one to five to 10 million, who knows, maybe even more, you know, annually for your team. If you've added up football and basketball, you got to raise a ton of money. And, yeah. And, and it's not something that head coaches are predisposed to at a high level. Fundraising is really hard. It's not an easy thing to do at all. Right. And it's a lot of us got into education for a reason. We're not good at business. <laughs> you know, we didn't want to get into good at business. You know, we didn't have a, uh, a series A, a series B, a capital investor. Like, when I, when I, now, I was fortunate having been in Ivy League. In the Ivy League, you are expected to raise money. Now, of course, you could say, well, you're in the Ivy League. Isn't it pretty easy to raise money? True. Yes. Our alumni tend to do very well for themselves. They yeah. have rich, rewarding lives, and they also tend to make a lot of money. And um, and so, you know, actually, I will say that when, when I was a luxury. I, at Stony Brook, I remember my, I had, we had to raise $15,000 a year, you know, back in 2004, my first year there. And I, I was sweating bullets if we were going to raise that 15000 um, then I got to Brown a couple years later and our goal was 150,000. So we moved the decimal point over one spot and, uh, I, I didn't lose any sleep. We, we were, it was, it was easy to make that. Money. Easy. Yeah. yeah you know, and, uh, but yeah, so you have your normal fundraise like we've had, you know, at Brown, yeah. Virginia, but all of a sudden there's a plus Y and a plus Z. And, um, and so, yeah, so we spent a lot more time 
you so know. what is the budget grown from? What is X was 150 grand five years ago. Now it's 250 grand. Yeah. What's, what's Y and Z now? Is it equivalent to X or is it higher or lower? Yeah. It, and I know that's the question. That's what we're trying to figure out. Um, we've been, we've been doing NIL deals for a little over a year here. We've been fortunate. Uh, Connor Schellenberger, Grayson Soliday, Cole Kastner, um, some of our upperclassmen, our older men have, uh, brought forth business opportunities to our collective. Every big university seems to have a collective and ours is capping their futures. And we've been, you know, been able to connect these business opportunities with our captains and some of our better players and through the collective i'm i step out of it i'm not supposed to be involved i can't be on but it's all set up they boom things happen that's great it's great it's great and are they making about you know five ten thousand yeah great money at that age yeah it's awesome. oh yeah it's a lot of dollar beers <laughs> <laughs> the problem is now we're getting into the age of what's happening on the front end with the 16, 17 year old. Yeah. Because now they're hearing about NIO money. Hey, I heard Connor Schellenberg's got a deal. Well, what about me? I'm like, well, you're 17, you're 16. I can't induce yeah. you. I can tell you what Connor earned, you know, uh, last year, but there's no guarantee you're getting it. Yeah. But now, but I'm sitting there and, and you get it's the blank air. Yeah. It sounds but, like a lot of expectation management and a, a shift in. And, and it can be expectation management. And it can be real management if you're like, well, coach, that's great. But school X told me I was going to get $25,000 a year. And you're like, oh, God. And so that's becoming the new metric, the new reality. Yeah. So as a coach, we now have to talk to our collectives and say, okay, how can I, how can I help you collect more money so you yeah. can help my future captains and third and fourth years, or juniors and seniors, what we call it UVA, so you can help them. They go, well, you got to raise money. You got to make sure that, you know. Yeah. And so you can get we're, spending, we're spending a lot more time on making yeah. sure our, our collective's coffers are filled so that we can help out our future upperclassmen. Yeah. And, um, because, yeah, NIL, people are. And so, so real quick, does the, does the collective act as representation for these athletes? Or are these athletes acting as their own representation? Because five, 10 grand a year is great for a college player, but it's not enough money to have somebody be in between brokering and representing the athlete 10 out of 10 times. Exactly. The collective, you know, on these softer deals, you're right. That, I think that's, uh, and I say softer, five, $10,000 a lot yeah. of money. I think that, yeah, I think the collective can be there to help guide and direct and say, oh, this is a legitimate opportunity here. Um, you're not signing over your name for the next 25 years in per, or in perpetuity that you're no longer going to be able to control your name image like this. Yeah. Um, but and it's interesting right now, the NCAA is, has a bunch of legislation proposed to give the university more ability to support and guide the student athletes with reviewing contracts with under making sure they understand taxation. Yeah. Uh, and so I hope this goes through because right now it's a little gray. The collective cap futures can help, but you do in the end of the day, if, if, if push comes to shove, you're like, you know what, get an agent, get a lawyer, have somebody, get an accountant, have somebody really yeah. look at this. And to your point, I think you were insinuating, well, what's that cost? You know, if you're only getting five grand, you know, but he's got two grand in lawyer fees and agent fees or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't add up. And, and I think at the college level, it's one thing. But to your point, at the high school and the recruiting level, 
we're hearing stuff in football and basketball. It's stupid. It's millions of dollars before they ever touch a college field. There's a, there's a lot of really football no players. As a, as a kid that grew up in an area that maybe never saw that before, how do you say no to that? And how do you tell a kid to say no to that? Yeah. And how do, right, the, how do the parents say no to it? You know, the young man may still say, you know, I, I still want to go to, you know, the, the best school in yeah. the country, you know, this, but the parents are like, but this other school is offering twice. It's twice as much. And, you know, you're hearing a lot of deals in a six-figure range, rarely in a seven-figure, but you, you're, there's a lot of deals for bet football and basketball in, yeah. in that six-figure range. And uh, um, that can really help a family. There's no question about it. Now, the problem is, what are they signing? And who's got who's got their back? And so maybe there is an agent involved, but you got to be careful because it can't be an agent based on your ability to play sports. But we all know they're doing this because they're – a heck of an athlete, you know. Yeah, they're not getting the money for, for any other reason. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's not pay for play, but you yeah. know, say um, I know, and that's why we're you really? know, in front of Senate recently. There was uh, some um, some NCAA reps and and university and educational leaders really begging Congress. Can you give us some structure and oversight here? It's important. And it, it's it's really, really important. And granted, they have bigger fish to fry right now. Hopefully there's enough staff there and we pay enough taxes that there should be. But uh, everything with AI and everything else going on, like there's a lot of big fish to fry on the agenda. This is just something where you have a group of people that have been really like overlooked as a key contributor in generating the revenue in the first place. For the last hundred years, the NCAA has existed, and now this new market's being created, and it will be the wild west, and there will be a lot of really bad horror stories that come out of it, like any market development, and there'll be a lot of great stories of life changing events and people doing it mm -hmm. the right way. But the faster we can get some, I think, just these guys' representation and awareness of what they're doing and how it's going to affect them in the long run, and the the magnitude of the decisions being made, it's 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 ten x what it was ten years ago. Yeah, right. you're right. And I like your historical perspective. There's going to be bumps along the road. Anytime there's uh, a new innovation, um, there, there's a new direction. And this is certainly a new direction for athletics. You know, yeah. when uh, the Supreme Court voted unanimously to tell the NCAA, you, you can no longer prohibit what is a basic American right, you know, that you can benefit off your name image like this. And you can do it your whole life. We don't stop from age 18 to 22 anymore. No, it's their entire life. You can do this. And, uh, yeah. you know, I just, and so here we are, and that's our new reality. And, and I think some of us are remiss. You know, we're worried about what this is going to look like um, in the future. Um, is this and the some are early adopters and they're going to be on the front end of, of the change? Exactly. And, and um, you know, I think it's an opportunity for teams that are not at the top tier to get to the top tier. Innovate top to the front. Exactly. And yeah. I want to make sure it's not an opportunity for a team at the top tier to fall down to the mid tier. <laughs> yeah. So we've got to be within the rules. We've got to work within the rules. Absolutely. Um, but we, we've got to be innovative. So it's really interesting. And I, I want to tie it back to the whole mission of this podcast is to grow the game. And it applies to every sport um, across the country at every level. Really, we target, you know, youth and travel. And we want to get the critical mass of kids playing sport bigger and bigger and bigger. Having a great college program that kids aspire to, to be a part of having these NIL deals that kids aspire to, to have access to. And, and now it's a little closer than getting to the pro level where they can actually start to see some reward from 
their efforts outside monetary reward. Of course, there's the all the non-monetary benefits, which way outweigh the monetary benefits uh, of playing sports. But um, can you talk about what was the one to three signature sauce, the things that really helped you build the Virginia program and how is that going to change? What's the new one to three in this shifted world where NIL is now a really big part of the story? Yeah. I, well, fortunately, when I took the job uh, over after Dom Starja, I, I was inheriting an incredible history and a legacy. Now, Dom Starja had taken uh, many, many of his teams to the Final Four, I think 13 in 24 years. He'd won four national championships. Um uh, men before him had won national championships. So I was taking over a program that even though it was down when I arrived, the history speaks for itself and it resonates, you know, with families and, and elite lacrosse players. Um, so I wasn't starting from scratch by any means. The, and, and fortunately the cupboard was full. Um, and so when we look at what was the signatures, what are we going to put on the stamp on this program? One, we were going to bring this, the frenetic, uh, hyper speed style lacrosse that we were playing at Brown. And, uh, we didn't think we had the right parts to the puzzle that first year or two. If you're going to play breakneck speed lacrosse and there's going to be 50 shots for each team and there's going to be 38 goals scored, you better be good in a goal and you better be good at the faceoff backs. You know, we had Jason Murphy, um, for that last year and he hung in there. He was 53, 52%. He battled. Um, the goal we were struggling in because um, we had to dismiss the starting goalie um, and uh, we dismissed six or seven men, unfortunately, those that first year and a half um, as we were changing the program and changing the mindset of, you know, and decision making. And so but we decided as a staff, like, you know what, for the long version, for the long term view here, let's put in a system that we want to play, that I learned from the Native Americans, that Sean Kerwin brought from Tufts. Let's yeah. let's just it's a fun way to play it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, a fun way to play. Down. It's gonna attract recruits. Yeah. It's the way the game was meant to be played, the way um the indigenous people, you know, they were competing at this. It's this is this is what we want to do. And of course, we didn't invent it as we know. You know, it was this is the way the game was played in the 70s and 80s. You know, some incredible lacrosse coaches came along in the 90s and slowed things down and managed it and won. But uh yeah. You know, we were like, look, but it wasn't as fun to watch. That's for sure. It wasn't as fun to watch. And, and so the innovations that we sort of dusted off and brought back to the game, you know, I think it startled a lot of the lacrosse world that it was working in Providence, Rhode Island. And we're like, this could work in Charlottesville, Virginia, but we recognized we didn't have the right pieces yet. And then we were fortunate, you know, Alex Road arrives, Petey LaSalle yeah. arrives, and those two men alone, because now you got a goalie who can see 50 shots. Now you got a face off guy who can endure 37 face-offs in a game yeah. and uh, and be highly successful um everyone was so in face-offs everyone wants to be great in a goal i get that but if you're going to play this style it you really exaggerates. You need the possessions yeah. yeah if you stink in a goal and you stick at the face-off x you're trying to play a 6-5 game i get it um we're trying to play a 16-15 game so let me dig in just for a second i'm sure everybody's wondering it so do you let the system, it sounds like you let the system was prioritized over. Uh, now we're going to bring the people in around the system and build the culture around the system. Is that fair? Exactly. It's, it's a very fair thing to say. I remember talking about it with the staff that first year or two. Like, what would Bill Belichick do? Bill Belichick, when Tom Brady was hurt, would rewrite the playbook and they would have a totally different playbook for this backup quarterback. It's As opposed to us, who's like, no, this is the playbook. 
We're going to do our system so everyone understands, get more comfortable with it. We may lose a couple of games because of it. We chose that as opposed to let's do whatever we can to win today, yeah. even if it means slowing the game down. We didn't want to do that. We didn't. We we avoided that. So yeah, we 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 said let, let's let's go with the uh, the long term view. It's so interesting because the parallels to defining your business model and and how you're going to grow the business and what you stand for that really dictates the people that you need in the organization to accomplish that goal that way, because there's a million ways to climb the mountain. You got to pick one. You can't pick 10 of them. And once you pick one, you know, it's either a very steep path and you need a certain type of climber or it's a a long path and you need a different kind of climber. And there's nothing to say either one's better than the other, but for a defined system, there is a way to say one is better than the other. And I think it, it is one of those, the, the chicken, the egg comes before the chicken type of situations <laughs> yeah i'm cool that's good you see that analogy uh that's synonymous with what you're doing with your your you know those moments like all right well this we might lose money doing this but i think we have to you know yeah. marketing deal you know it's a giveaway you know spreading sharing the gear equipment whatever it goes on with your with your business plans yeah and sometimes like you know what i think for the I remember actually talking about that with Bronco Menonol. Um, he was the head football coach. He was hired the same year I was. And his first year, they went two and 10. And my first year, we went eight and seven. And for Virginia lacrosse in our tradition, eight and seven might as well be two and 10, right? Yeah. And I really looked at it like, wow, I now understand that saying, it's going to get worse before it gets better when a new boss, a new coach steps in. And I never yeah. believed it. I thought that's what losers said because they didn't win their first year or two. But I really understood it better now because I was like, no, it's going to get worse before it gets better. One, we're going to play our style of play. We're going to learn it. And there's going to be some learning, growing pains. And we don't have the right guys yet. But I want the other guys to see, you know, this is what we are. And um, and we're going to build it out this way. But two, really where we became poignant was with our decision making socially. And what I mean by that is the change management of, of the people to accomplish the system. Exactly. And if we had the hardest thing in business, the hardest thing is change management. Yeah. Like what if we, what if you'd come in and all of a sudden instant success? So what if I'd come in and we had a 12 and four record and go to the quarterfinals, you know, the people within the players specifically, you know, they could certainly point to the fact like, Oh, I knew it was just a bad coach. We just need a new boss. That was all we needed. I don't have to change. Whereas that didn't happen. It needed to get worse before it got better because, you know, we go from seven and eight to my first year, eight and seven, massive change, huh? And I'm like, okay, well, maybe they can bring in a new boss or maybe you guys have to start changing some decisions and things you're doing on the weekends and Tuesday nights. And maybe you got to be more focused here and maybe you got to make yourself a little more vulnerable, you know, and talking about things in our cultural book readings and, Maybe we got to adapt here because yeah. it's not working and you changed boss. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes it does need to get worse before it gets better because you really need to go like, oh, wow, I, I was pointed to that as the problem, but we fixed that and we still got a problem. <laughs> yeah. Takes time. It takes time. And and once you make the change to see it flesh out and to stick to your guns and know that this is the way we're going to do it. We know it's going to get worse. There's going to be a bit of a J curve, but on the other side of it, it's going to be so much better and we're going to be so much more successful. So it sounds like in the three, two or three signature sauce to get to where you're at was really restructuring the culture, establishing the system first, Mm -hmm. restructuring the culture, bringing the right people in and dealing with change management of it. 
And then just setting the, the culture by design to continue to grow with every new class that came in. And it's, it's led you guys to some really incredible success. How do you see it shifting? And what do you see the one to three things going forward now that NIL and these bigger budgets and all the shift is happening? What do you anticipate? I know you don't have a magic crystal ball, but if you had to guess. Yeah, I think making it more collaborative. We might be just about a, the most collaborative team in the country, but I think continuing to promote that and ensuring that we bring the men in, we educate them on our terminologies and how we do our business and then turn it back on them. Okay, make it better. Talk about this. You're the decision maker. Making it more collaborative. I think you're, you're finding that this the, the, the future athlete um, wants more of a voice and wants more of a say. Um, they're getting paid indirectly, you know, to play a sport now. Yeah. Um, you know, they're going to be more vocal. They feel that. Yeah, I think it's generational too. I don't even think it's just exclusive to athletes. I think we're even seeing it in the in the workforce, the next generation coming in, they want to participate in product development. They want to be in marketing conversations, even if they're a sales pro and you know they're dealing with all their day-to-day business. And it's kind of a beautiful thing because you get way better decision making, you get way better diversity of thought going in, and you get people thinking about the different stakeholders in the business. There's the business as a stakeholder, but there's the client as a stakeholder. And then there's the people internally as stakeholders. Everyone's got to have a great experience. And how can we make decisions that that really prioritize that? So yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with you. I think that is a macro generational trend. And it's a really good good one to spot out as a, as a head coach of new generations every single year. Yeah. And it's it's kind of an, it's an old school thought. Stay in your lane. That's that's not your department. Hey, that, that, it's the hierarchical design, like you were saying. Yeah, yeah, and very that's, siloed. And and I've and, and I experience it still sometimes. You know, like what is she talking about? She that's not her. She should just worry about what her job is. I'm like, I don't know. I'm, uh, is that really how we should feel? You know, maybe she's trying to help us get better in this other area. And she's let's see, let's see what she has to say. And uh, and so yeah. yeah, that that collaboration is going to be more and more critical um i truly believe moving forward i think the cultural piece our book reading trying to make this thing cohesive is going to be more and more important because we are going to create more stratified layers of who's getting paid and who's not getting paid you know we already had that there's already in a sense pay for there play. Was a, yeah starter second string third string was to some extent full ride half ride Walk yeah. on nothing. We already had pay for play. Like if you were great, we give you a big scholarship. We pay for you to yeah. come here and play. But you know, obviously, that was under the guise of educational costs to go to that university. Now there's extra money. There's money on top of that. Yeah, and, and it's a lot more public. Those exactly, and those layers are going to get large. The, the, the differences could get larger. Um, it would be wonderful if, if with NIL we could be supporting the guy who's on ten percent scholarship and boosting him up. And the guy who's on a 75% scholarship, he doesn't need more. That'd be wonderful. I'm almost this communistic type approach <laughs> to the yeah. business of sports. But the reality is, um, moving forward, that the next Connor Schellenberger, you know, everyone who's trying to get him is offering a full ride. And there might be like, and eh, what else? Yeah. Sort of yeah. look in their eyes or questions. And we live in a capitalist system. Yeah. It is, right. Yeah. And it's, it's a beautiful country we live in. And uh, and it's a reality that we have. And so, and so the the cultural piece of bonding these pe- these people together when you know we're going even larger and a bigger you know sort of 
salary cap difference in a sense, uh, salary gap, I should say, not cap. That yeah. there's a, it's a, um, and I shouldn't say salary because that's not true, but you know, but it's, it's just, I think making sure we've got a buy-in and that people are understanding and accepting that their role and what they have, you know, that, that our cultural book reading and our time together, I think is going to be even more and more important. Um, how I structure practices and make sure that yeah. I uh, find it's important that I don't put the starters with the starters from October one on, you know, that there's mix, that there's an opportunity to prove yourself and disprove yourself to go up and down the depth chart that you're fighting for playing time. And it doesn't matter if you were a big scholarship guy, you know, it's the best who's performing now is playing. Yeah. So I think humility and, and opportunities for humility in the, in the practice line. I just, I just really got to be careful because you can almost use pro, pro sports um, as a, uh, as an, as a, to exemplify what happens when you bring in these big, big name guys, you know, and sometimes they name them captain. They haven't even met their team yet. And all of a sudden they're a captain. What the heck does that mean? You know, but what does that all that excess money mean? Um, again, we have, we still, have, we have it currently on a small scale because there's different size scholarships in the room, mm-hmm. but what's it, what's happens when all of a sudden those $10,000 NI deals become $25,000 NI deals, which five years from now it could be 50 or a hundred thousand, who knows where our yeah. sport Really an incredible challenge that you have in front of you and one that all college coaches have and a responsibility. And it's funny, like even I'm talking to the tennis coach here at UVA the other day and he's like, Oh my gosh, I spent so much time talking about NIL. <laughs> you know, every non-revenue generating coach who thought two years ago, I don't know if this will impact us, you know, football, basketball, sure, but not me. Oh my goodness, we're all we're all getting touched by it. You know, it's uh yeah. it's happening. I'm sure the pickleball companies are all coming out of the woodwork for those tennis athletes. <laughs> now I say this and I and I'm talking about division one, you know, maybe D2, D3, I don't know. Maybe they maybe they won't be impacted by this much at all. Um, maybe they will someday. I think uh, it's going to be, I, I think the same way there's that gap on a team, there'll be that gap in the divisions to some extent. That said, every D3 coach or most D3 coaches are trying to work their way up. So they'll have to be exposed to it at some point and they'll have to go through a, a learning process to manage it. Um, sure. It makes sense because if there's an opportunity to reduce the cost of education for one of your student athletes in the recruitment process, of course, you're going to talk about it. You know, we're always trying to help yeah. our, our prospects, our student athletes to lessen the charge that they have to pay at the end of the day, end of the year, but where their parents are paying it. And um, whatever we can do for them, you know, I could see uh, certainly, you know, we're competitive in the recruitment process. And if it can help secure better talent in the acquisition process. And I'm sure the D2 and D3 coaches are going to figure this out as well yeah. uh, on, a, on a different scale, but you know, a scale nonetheless that, you know, well, coach, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your story with us. And it's incredible what you're building there at Virginia. And we're really uh, rooting for you guys this season. Where can the listeners follow along? Obviously come to the games um, follow Virginia lacrosse on, on social. What's the handles? Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to for people to jump on and, and follow us uh, through X and uh, Instagram and and such. Um, certainly, nothing better than being live, though, right? You know, uh, we've got eight home games coming up here in uh, the spring of twenty four. Um, the weather's a little warmer, a little nicer down here, and uh, <laughs> an incredible environment. Uh, it yeah. really is, and, and Clockner is just about a, the best venue you can play in, and uh, fan friendly. Sitting on the stands or sitting over there on the hill on the berm on the far side and families over there, kids rolling around playing. But yeah, 
being a part of this, uh, being live. Um, you know, it's, it is a fun way to play the game the way we do. It's fun for the fans. Uh, it's entertaining. Very entertaining. Very entertaining. Yeah. And it's, again, it's, it's what this is fundamentally all about. We spent a lot of time here talking about culture and talking about money and NIL and, you know, but I, I always got to ask myself, are we, is, it, is it still exciting? Is it still invigorating for the men? Is it fun? Bottom line, you know, the, nobody yeah. has to do this. You know, they're uh, passion for the game. Yeah. Uh, it just, you just really enjoy it. Um, and uh, um, so, yeah, that's the, uh, that's the goal. But yeah, hopefully, love to uh, love that people come out to Clockner or see us on the road. Well, we sure will this season. So, coach, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and thank you everybody for listening and, um best of luck this season coach all right thank you dan thank you for tuning in to the signature grow the game podcast we hope you found our conversation with our guest insightful and thought-provoking don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe so that you never miss an episode and of course a big thanks to our title sponsor signature athletics for their continued support of this podcast and their dedication to making youth sports programs feel like the big leagues Be sure to check out their game-changing Team Swag stores to elevate your program's look and feel. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Signature Grow the Game podcast.